phrase when you're a child? Where are you going with that? A concerned parent to maybe a uh, two or three-year-old or three or four-year-old with like painting supplies, kind of on a mission towards the living room to use the carpet as their canvas. Where are you going? You know, you know that phrase. I heard that phrase a lot when I was a kid. Where are you going with that? I remember one time specifically, my, uh, I decided for whatever reason that I was going to rip the sheet off of my bed and uh, attach this yellow twine to the four corners of the sheet. And then I brought those pieces of twine, pieces of rope down into this central knot, made myself this kind of harness thing, and I called this the parachute. And what I was going to do with this parachute is I was going to go and get on top of my roof, and it's about a 20-foot drop down to the backyard, and I was going to jump off the roof. And so what do I need? I need my parachute and the twine and my little harness, and I need a ladder to get on top of the roof. And so I'm in the garage rummaging, finding the ladder, walking out in the backyard, and all of a sudden that voice of reason within the house yells, where are you going with that? And it's my mom, and she's concerned. And I, don't, I was eight or nine. I don't, I don't remember what I told her to to continue on with my mission, but whatever it was, it worked, and I ended up on top of the roof, and I'm staring down at that 20 feet, my parachute in hand, ready to, <laughs> ready to jump off the roof and throw it and let it catch air and float me to the ground, and I decided that there was, there was a good chance I'd break my ankle if that didn't work out, and so I climbed back down off the roof and got, a, uh, I think, a bucket of concrete and uh, this little five-gallon bucket with some dried concrete, and attached that to my parachute, and chucked the bucket through the parachute, and as you could probably guess, it busted into about a thousand pieces on the ground, and there went the, uh, the future patent for my parachute. But it's interesting, my mom asked that question because she was concerned with my safety, um, and, it's, and she also knows me very well, our parents know us very well, and she knew the world that influenced me at that age. She knew the MacGyver shows that I spent a lot of time watching and the James Bonds and the Indiana Jones. And, and she knew my circles of influence. And so she sees me marching through the backyard with a ladder and a sheet and rope and heading towards the roof. And she's like, where are you going with that? And I think God does the same thing with us. He knows our circles of influence. He knows the decisions we make. He knows the world in which we live. And he asks us, where are you going with that? Where are you going making those kind of decisions? Where are you going with that outlook on life in your world? Because he knows us. And he knows the world in which we live. And so because he's concerned with us, he asks us, in the end, are the things that you're gathering to yourself, are the decisions that you're making, the kind of things that will get you in the end where you really want to go? Are they bringing you satisfaction? Are they bringing you fulfillment? So he asks us, through his word and through other avenues, where are you going with that? In our passage this morning, in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, God asks the same question to a group of people, a group of business individuals 2,000 years ago. But, but before we get to that, I want to ask you, where are we going? If you think about our lives, you think about, well, we're born, we get an education, and somewhere in that process, somewhere along that line, we get a job, and we begin making money. We get funds, and, and then this process of consuming starts to really ring in and be, become a, a factor in our lives, this consumption, this concept of getting, of buying things, starts from a very young age in our culture, and it continues. You get a job, 
You get a real world job and you buy more and you buy more and you buy more. And I think somewhere along the way, God is asking us, where are you going with that? Americans, where are you going with that? Is it getting you where you want to go? Is it bringing you the kind of peace and satisfaction that you really long and crave for? So turn to James chapter 4, if you haven't already, verse 13, and read with me. James says to these individuals, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. In fact, anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, commits sin. Come now. 2,000 years ago, those two words would have really hit this audience like a ton of bricks. It's that wake up. You're sleeping. Pay attention. I've got something important to say. It's the word that religious men, the phrase that religious men of the day would have used when they had an oracle from the gods. There's something important to say. This come now. The Old Testament prophets of old. They use this phrase a lot to get the attention of the audience because something important is coming. And that's what James is using here, that exact phrase. In fact, he'll use it if you can see the beginning of chapter 5. He'll use it again right there. Come now. It's an attention getter. And as we read it 2,000 years later, we should expect something important in the following words. He says, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town, spend a year there doing business and making money. There's fundamentally nothing wrong with that phrase. It's important, though, to note that James is actually speaking to an actual group of people. This is just not theoretical wisdom, just advice that he's going to throw out there into space. This is spoken to an actual group of people, probably saying these actual words. Today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a town, we'll make some money. No big deal. We'll spend some time there. Fundamentally, in our worldview, we read this and we're like, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with investigating a market? Finding out that our business endeavors will succeed within that market. There's fundamentally nothing wrong with that in our culture. But that's why we have to go back 2,000 years and investigate the world of the Bible a little bit. The world of the Bible was what we call a limited good society. And I view it a lot like a teeter-totter. So if you have a teeter-totter and someone's on one side and, and another person is on the other side, one goes up, one goes down. The other one goes up, the other one goes down. Amos in the Old Testament is commenting on the rich people's winter and summer houses. I've talked to you, this audience about this before. What it meant in the ancient world when you had two houses, someone else didn't have one. That's what we call a limited good society, teeter-totter. You go up. Other people go down. In this society, you would stand upon other people to get where you would get with your, with your status or with your sense of achievement in the world. Not like ours, maybe. So there's fundamentally nothing wrong with it if you think about it in the course of today's society. But back then, it would have been, it would have been words that would need to, need to carry with them some caution. But here's a balance. We're going to question this morning our culture. We're going to question where we are going as a consumeristic culture. But, but I need to say, first off, that balance is our end goal. 
As human beings, it is our tendency, like a pendulum, to start on one side of the extreme, swing completely through the middle where we should probably be, and end up on the other side in the other extreme. Oh, man, I, I have too much money. You give it all away. You put an incredible strain on your family. Not, not okay. Somewhere in the balance is where we need to be. Um, a Greek individual named Pericles, about 2,500 years ago, um, in his Ode to Fallen Athenian Warriors, uh, has some interesting things to say about balance. He says, we are lovers of beauty without extravagance and lovers of wisdom without effeminacy. Wealth to us is not mere material for vainglory, but an opportunity for achievement. And we think poverty nothing to be ashamed of unless one makes no effort to overcome it. But that phrase, wealth to us, is not mere material for vainglory, but opportunity for achievement is kind of where we're going this morning. This concept that, yes, in America, we are an affluent society. That's not the question. That probably won't change. But what needs to change is what we do with that affluence. At one level... These business individuals are just as we've seen in, in the later comments of this passage, focusing on and making comments that are kind of simple arrogance. Just, I think that I know what's going on in the world. I'm doing my thing. I may be stepping on other people to get where I'm going, but it's not that big of a deal. On the other side, though, it is a worldview based on envy, on getting and gaining more and more no matter what the cost. And that is not okay. So what does James say to these individuals? If you look at verse 14, he says, yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What do you think of that? Does that one hit you hard? You don't know what tomorrow will bring? It doesn't sting my ears too much because every day I've woken up, most of us live pretty predictable lives. Some of us whose health is kind of on the Ritz, it's not quite the same, but the majority of us live fairly predictable lives. Every day we wake up, that sun comes up, we live our day, we go to sleep, and it just happens again and again and again. So this concept that we don't know what tomorrow will bring, sure, we buy into that, but we don't live that out. We don't live in utter dependency that tomorrow may not come. The dangerous thing with that is that really that sense of security that we get from day coming after day after day becomes our God in a way. The Old Testament of the Bible would use the phrase idolatry that we would end up worshiping the sense of security we get from the predictability of life instead of worshiping the author and perfecter of life. So James says you don't know the future. He also says, what is your life for you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes? And Graham has a clip for us that I think illustrates this point very interestingly. Hey, Jay. Zed called the high consulate from Salaxia of Nine wants floor seats for the next Bulls game. All right, let's put in a call to Dennis Rodman. He's from that planet. Rodman? You're kidding. Nope. Not much of a disguise.
makes makes you think a little bit. The the concept that I wanted you to take from that was I've been studying space a little bit and the infinitude of the universe and of the solar system and of galaxy. It's just fascinating. It's mind-boggling. In fact, our trivial issues, kind of the pithy problems that we have in our lives just become so small when compared with this concept of not only the universe and, and the stars, but but eternity in and of itself. It brings perspective to us. And that's, I think, what James is trying to get across to his audience here. Get some perspective. Your life in the scope of things is really so small. You're a mist that vanishes. What is your life? This word mist here is atmos. We get our word atmosphere from it. In the Old Testament, Kohelet, the uh, author of Ecclesiastes, uses the, the Hebrew phrase hevel, but what he means in that is vapor. And he uses that phrase in Ecclesiastes, you're familiar with it, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Vapor, mist. It's here one second and then it's gone. James is equating, equating our lives to that concept of vapor. Very temporal, not here very long. These individuals in this passage have their very worldview challenged. Uh, it technically, a technical term, we call it an epistemological question. We call it a why do I exist question. He asks them, what is your life? Why are you here? I want to illustrate this much in the same way that Ken did last week. The reason he's asking them what is your life is because he's questioning their loyalties. And so if you view it kind of like this, there are two worlds. We are here in the middle this is the earth, or what we call just the world. It's kind of that Christian technical term. And over here is God. What are the characteristics that define this world over here? Craving, wanting more and more, Gaining our lives by grabbing as much as we can, trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction by taking things into our own hands. Over here, the, the fundamental values are a little different. Giving of your life. Losing your life to gain it. Over here, we say the word would be get. Getting things. Over here, it would be give. And Ken talked about last week, these two worlds are fundamentally opposed to one another. Where do you line up? He's speaking to this audience, and he's saying, where are you? We walk the line, right? We walk on that fence. We grab things from over here. We get what we can from over there. And God says, no, no, it's all right here. In fact, everything you experience in this world that has any goodness to it, any beauty, any truth, is a reflection of me on a very small level. You belong over here. I know it's tough. I know this stuff gives you instant gratification, but I give you absolute fulfillment. These two fundamentally opposed worlds. Where are you going with that? question we have, and I think a question that James is asking these individuals, is do we exist to squeeze pleasure and status out of every circumstance we're in, getting, getting, getting more and more and more? Do we hoard resources in an attempt to improve our status and take part in retail therapy and all kinds of things? Those are the values of, of this part of the world. Which gives us an opportunity to talk, to talk about um, consumption. Gandhi 
He said that the luxuries of our fathers have become necessities for us. He said that 60 years ago. Imagine where we are now. The luxuries of our fathers have become necessities to us. You don't know it, right, until you leave this country, until you visit other cultures that live by different value systems. But it's very true. Uh, I think about four years ago, Visa ran an ad. I think it was in partnership with Target that said, the power to get was the slogan. Credit card company, the power to get. No veiled, subliminal message, beautiful girl, beautiful guy on the screen, the product only, only on the screen for 10 seconds of the minute commercial. No, flat out, we know what you want. This card will give it to you. The power to get. It's kind of a chuckle thing, but it's also kind of scary. We live in a consumeristic society. There's a, a statistic that's been around for a number of years that says that those of us uh, who represent 5% of the world's population use 95% of its resources. That statistic, I believe, is inflated. I think it, from at least what I could study from, from uh, a study done by the Human Resource Development and the World Bank and a couple other sources, I think it's probably 80-20, but nonetheless, it's pretty startling. 20%, 15% of the world's population uses 80, 85% of the world's resources. It's interesting Maybe we live in more of a limited good society than we think. Maybe the resources of this world that we think are so abundant aren't as abundant as we think. And I guess as a society, we're coming face to face with that, with some shortages on maybe oil, um, how we use our energy, things we're doing to the environment. Along that note, um, I have a book to recommend to you. It's a book by Ronald Sider entitled Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And uh, the tagline title is Moving from Affluence to Generosity. It's, it's uh, a fairly powerful book that gets you to think, um, to get you to question some of the values, and to get you to question of our culture, and to get you to um, ask yourselves, where are you going with the way our culture thinks? Interesting note on the concept of a lack of food. 34 million children, this was a study done three, four years ago, 2003, 34 million children die every single day of malnutrition, lack of food, and other preventable diseases. Every day. Lack of food, starvation, famine, big deals. And it, and it, as you know, only affects the lower strata of society. When an area is short on rain, when famine moves into a society, those who are wealthy can still get food. But those who live on a subsistence level who could barely get by when the rains were there really are losing out. Not only are hungry, but are actually dying. But here's the, here's, remember I told you about that pendulum swing. So there's a group of people who are dying because they don't have enough to eat over here. Where are we in our country? We're killing ourselves because we have too much food. We're getting heart disease. We have excesses in tobacco and alcohol that are, that are killing us. Excess here kills, lack of here kills. It's about being in the middle. It's about balance. Startling. The question is, um, or one of the questions I would propose is, does exercising modesty in regard to our human projects and plans have any value? I would give you my answer and say, I'm not sure. I think it probably does. Does exercising modesty in our projects and our plans have any value? Is it something we should get into? 
Should we maybe set a limit to our spending? Because you know how life works. You get that job paying $25,000, $30,000 a year, and you live at this level, and then you get the job that pays forty, and you live at this level, and it just goes like this, right? Is that the way it's supposed to be? I don't know. We make up the rules. You know what I'm saying? We control the way our society goes. If it's not bringing us to a place we like, we should do something about it. That's why God is asking us, where are you going with that? Or how about this? How's it affecting our families? I got a cell phone in 2000, in 2000, and I cannot imagine my world without it. I don't know if you're the same way. This stupid little thing controls my life, right? Some of you are disciplined. You shut it off for a couple of days. It's a great thing to do. But do you remember how we would get a hold of people before cell phones? You'd have to leave messages on their home answering machine. It was a total hassle. But what? It worked, right? We got by. Now we can't imagine it. Is technology bringing you closer and closer to your family? Able to spend more time in meaningful relationships with people because of technology? Well, I find we're maintaining that technology most of our time. Spending most of our time with windows crashing and things like that, that we lose time playing ball with your kids or your friends. It's interesting what we're doing to ourselves. We're bringing more and more convenience into our lives, but is it really getting us where we want to go? Where are you going with that? How does it affect the family? So James has some more words for us. He says in verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills or if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. It's not just a matter of speech that he's exhorting these individuals to, but a challenge to their very worldview, their very perception of reality. He's saying, you are acting as if there is no option B, or maybe we call it option A or option two. You're acting as if it's all here. And God plays no role in your life. It's interesting, too. I was communicating to some high schoolers a couple weeks ago this concept that we think we know what's best for us. But actually, God knows what's best for us. And he continually is trying to communicate that to us. The question is whether or not we listen. And so when it says, do you commit yourself daily to what the Lord wills and the Lord wishes? It's not that religious burden. It's not the thing that you throw on your back and it makes you hump over and you're saying, if the Lord wills, I'll do this and that. It's the thing that can bring you absolute fulfillment and peace in your life. Because God, remember what I said, everything in life that we experience that's pleasurable and truthful and beautiful comes from God. And he wants nothing more than to give us all of those things. It's on his terms. It's through his perception of reality. But it's all right there. In fact, if you were to really think about it, I've drawn this up as it's proportional, right? This side, it covers about a foot of the page, square foot. This side, same. Is it that way in reality? No, I couldn't draw God's perception of reality and what God's world is like large enough and the world so small enough that you'd really get the disparity between these two. They're not even on the same playing field. We view it like they're on the same playing field. We're like, oh, which way should I go? God over here, world over here. God's like, what are you doing? He knows, right? Because he lived a life in Christ, which allows him to empathize with us. But in the reality, God knows so much more that this is infinite and this is so absolutely finite. This is the grain of sand and this is all the sand on all the shores in the entire world. And we're like, oh, there's some good stuff over here. And God's like, get a clue. 
So not just a matter of speech, but a challenge to their perception of reality. In this world, we use competition to get more and more. It's a value so ingrained in American society, and it's brought us a lot of good things. But in question, what I think God is asking us this morning, where are we going with that? Is it a good thing to be so competitive, to always exploit, always step on, teeter-totter, go up on one side and down on the other? Or maybe values that the kingdom of God seems to espouse, like cooperation. Maybe we should find some balance in that. Don't hear me wrong, right? Remember, the pendulum swings from one side to the other. It's not all about just giving up everything to corrupt leadership in other countries and letting that just be exploited by them, right? We're to be strategic with this. There's balance. But it's not all about just getting, gaining more and more, living life by this perception of reality that says it's about envy. It's about gaining more and more for me, coveting. So James says to them, you should say if the Lord wills, you should do this or that. You should actually live and change your perception of reality. And so in this verse 16, he says, as it is, though, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So now he's saying it's not just improper speech, but it's a symptom of something evil. It's not just this morally improper judgment, but it's actually something fundamentally evil. This word um, arrogance here, alonzonia in Greek, was widely used in Hellenistic um, literature as the specific quality of the braggart, the boaster, or the foolish loudmouth. Alonzonia. Arrogant. So these people are kind of flaunting their perception of reality in their worldview. Um, they're not just subtly going by trying to gain more and more. They're out there full bore. Here I am. Here's what I'm into. Take it. Deal with it. Flaunting it in a way. And James is saying that's evil. It, it brings us to this concept of the upside down kingdom. Uh, recalling the introductory comments that James has when he's talking about considering it pure joy when you, when you face trials and when you suffer. These two worlds are not compatible. This one values things one way. The top gets a number one. This one values a much different system. The first shall be last. Gaining your life by losing it. Christ conquered all of the powers of evil in the entire world. How? With his sword? With his big gun? By dying. By sacrificing. That value is fundamentally opposed to our worldview, I think, many times. It was funny that uh, Courtney quoted Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador who um, was killed by the very tribe he was going to present the gospel to. Um, and, and his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, would later go and actually bring that gospel to successfully. It's a fascinating story. Um, He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'll give that to you one more time. It's very powerful. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's us, right? He's no fool who gives up all these things in this world that we can't take with us anyway, that we hoard and hoard and we stand on top of to give us status, to give us a sense of fulfillment. You can't take them with you anyway. So you're no fool if you just... Give them away. Get rid of them. Stop being burdened by them to then gain what you can never lose. 
peace, wholeness, and satisfaction that comes only from partnering with God and submitting to the way he wants us to live our lives. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. It's important to remember that um, James is speaking these words to Christians. These are not corrupt businessmen who don't entertain God in any way. These are the individuals who say all the right things, who believe the right things, who know the right thing to do, as we'll see. They're members of our very own Christian community. So James is calling them out a little bit. What are you doing? And that's why he says in verse 17, anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, commits sin. If you know what the right thing to do is and you don't do it, you're sinning. Again, not just a lack of moral judgment, but an actual sin. Something fundamentally opposed to the way God would have the world, world be and the world work. We call it the sin of omission or we call it negligence. And I'm reminded of the powerful illustration in the life of a man named Schindler during World War II who, who risks his entire life to save those the world around him, at least his, his community in, there in Germany, was saying have no value. He's giving all that he has to save the lives of those the world around him say have no value. And in that part, he's not only giving of his financial wealth and the things he's hoarded up for himself, he's, he's risking his very life for them. And it's kind of that Jim Elliott quote, he's no fool who gives away what he can't keep to gain what he can never lose. Or if you remember the Hotel Rwanda that Paul, I don't remember his last name, um, the individual who during that horrible genocide in the 90s risked his own very life taking in orphans, taking in uh, those from the schools around him, saving their lives by risking his own. When the dominant thrust in society at that point, at least a good half of it, was saying, hey, not a big deal. These people have no value. Don't, don't risk your situation to help them. Stay, stay where you are. Um, I'm going to have Kevin and Mike kind of move their way forward now. If you want to come forward, I'm not going to pull you up just, just a second, but I'll have you move your way forward. Um, this concept of knowing the right thing to do and not doing it uh, should hit us this morning pretty hard. Because I think all around us, we have opportunities. It's not just on a moral scale, knowing what's right, um, you know, knowing what sins you should not be involved in, what things you should not be involved in. But it's also in the concept of, more, of omission or negligence, seeing things in your world that you could possibly have a hand in and neglecting to do that. And almost getting the pat on your back by society. Yeah, you know what? They're in another country. You know what? That person's homeless. He's a drug addict. He's made all kinds of decisions that just, oh, he got himself into that situation. Maybe. I'm not saying to just throw our money away. I'm not saying to, as an affluent society, just waste it. We're to be strategic, and that's one thing we're going to talk about this morning in a second. But here are three principles. Life is not human-centered. It is God-centered if you're a Christian. If you're a follower of Christ, life is not human-centered. It is God-centered. And it follows then that if life is God-centered, then, then God's priorities, God's values should be our priority. So as a believer, life is not human-centered. It's God-centered. And if it is so, then the values of God 
the values of Christ should be those of the values that we prioritize in our lives. And evidence of whether or not we're prioritizing those values comes in the form of activity, actively doing just as much as it comes in the form of inactivity. Christians, you can sit here this morning believing all of the right things, saying that you know this and that, acting in many ways out the Christian faith. But if there are areas in your life you are neglecting to lend a hand, to help out, to use your opportunities to benefit those who are less opportunistic or or who have less opportunities, that in itself is also wrong. That in itself also misses the mark. That in and of itself also lends you to be over on this side and not over here. Being strategic. I'm going to call up Kevin and, uh, and Mike. I have the handheld for them. They've started a ministry that they're going to tell you a little bit about. This is Kevin Meyer and Mike Byler. Hi, guys. Kevin, why don't you tell us uh, real quick, how did you guys connect? Uh, how did we connect? Uh, well, actually, last November, before I was going to church uh, here, actually at church anywhere, um, <laughs> I had... <laughs> An encounter with a homeless man that's probably about my age, and uh, it really took me by surprise, and uh, it really broke my heart. I actually uh, got home after that experience and broke down sobbing, didn't know what to do, didn't know why I was feeling that way. And I'm not the kind of person that would say that God speaks to me a lot, or maybe it's that I haven't learned how to listen, but he spoke to me that day. And uh, he just told me that I was supposed to be doing something. I was supposed to be helping out. So when I started going to church earlier this year, um, I was listening to a lot of Ken's messages and uh, began to feel that same conviction in in my heart. So I went to Ken and told him that I was interested in helping out in the community with the homeless and wanted to know what was going on here at Antioch. And uh, he put me in touch with, uh, with Mike here. So... We started talking a couple of months ago. I think it was, I don't know, March or April. Anyway, what's your side of the story? It's about the same. <laughs> well, Mike, you can answer then. What? Tell us a little bit about the bridge and what the bridge has been doing. Well, along those lines, I, uh, I had the same calling in my heart. And it was interesting once Ken and I put, put us together. Um, but right now, he and I got together and we uh, brainstormed on what we could do. And we are currently, um, every third Thursday of every month, we are serving a meal at a Christian-based uh, homeless shelter called the Shepherd's House. Hmm. We serve meals, we lead worship, and uh, we lead chapel service. Solid. Kevin, uh, what is the vision of the bridge? Where do you hope to go with this? Well, actually, I'll read this. uh, I think this is coming out in uh, the magazine that we saw earlier today. But um, it's kind of a mission statement that we've written out. And uh, it goes like this. Uh, Our mission is to live the kingdom of heaven within the church and local community by representing Jesus in every opportunity to serve the homeless, hurting, sick, and lonely. Our vision is that the bridge will grow to be a hub of information, resources, and opportunities for anyone within Antioch that wants to become involved in the community ministry, including those who are looking for facilitation and starting their own outreach. So basically, what we're trying to do is just help inspire everyone else here in church to look for opportunities in our community and reach out because uh, in today's day and age, we don't see God in a pillar of fire very often. 
if people are going to see God, it's going to be through the body of Christ, living it out in their communities. So that's what we want to be a part of. And finally, Mike, uh, what can people do if they want to get involved with more information? Well, Kevin and I are pretty accessible. Obviously, you can flag us down here at church. His email is in uh, on the uh, flyer that's in the bulletin. I hope to get mine put on there too. But, um, yeah, just come to us. You know, if you have a heart for homeless or bring us any ideas where uh, where you feel maybe called to serve. And our goal is to kind of, like he said, to uh, put people together with uh, areas that can be served and the needs in our community because they are tremendous. You know, outside our door there are uh, many people who uh, who need in every way food, clothing, uh, finances, and any, anything. And, I, you know, not everybody's heart is for homeless people, but if you got an idea on where you want to serve or something you want to do, just bring us that idea and we'll do what we can to facilitate that Great. and get you put in tune with uh, – with that area. Great. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Here at Antioch, we are absolutely committed to God's vision um, and the reality of his kingdom for this world. Um, it's a struggle for all of us, but we will continue to ask ourselves, where are we going with our principles, with our programs, with the way we interact with the world, um, because we are fundamentally committed to the fact that God, that we live in a God-centered world and in a place where God's value should be prioritized. And you see that, I think, um, this is not a pat on our back moment, but it's great, I think. I get super excited when I think about ministries like The Bridge starting up. Starting up organically, not because some pastoral staff sat around and said, well, how do we follow out this verse? Because God is like, I'm going to connect with the world through this community. And he implants a seed in a couple individuals in our group. I think it's so powerful. We have other things like the Antioch Golf Tournament coming up for to, to support Uganda and things like a position coming on board for humanitarian rights all over the world. I hope you get excited as well about that because, and it's difficult, um, not, nothing in life uh, worth gaining is ever easy, but um, the concept is that we at Antioch are committed to being over here and we're going to work together to remain and encourage each other to be over here and to see God's values be prioritized in our world. And constantly check ourselves and ask ourselves, where are we going with that? So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, for the opportunity to praise you in song and praise you with our brains as we think a little bit and as we investigate your word and let you speak to us. We thank you for the power that you have inside of us that allows us to do things well beyond our means and our imaginations. And I pray that you'd continue to use the individuals in this community to make the world the kind of place that you want it to be. Father, just bless this day. Bless the opportunities that you've given us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.